My parents like dragged me to really prestigious schools that I just felt mostly like, I don't belong here. Like I'm not good enough to go here. And I wrote this show about feeling like a imposter at that school and being a first generation Dominican student and being around all these like statues of dead white men. I just wrote something funny about that feeling and pointed out to people, you know, I wasn't the only one that felt a little intimidated. Hello, welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising black, indigenous, and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I am Raymond Dozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamoto-Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Michael Rodriguez. He is a Dominican writer currently freelancing from Los Angeles, California. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being on. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm an animation writer. I've written for a lot of the studios, including Disney, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Netflix. Um, I've been working for about, I feel like four or five years now. Um, I'm an alum of the Sesame Street Writers Program. Yeah. I mean, time flies. This pandemic, it's so (laughs) weird, but... um, But yeah, I've been writing an animation for a couple years now, uh, and it's great. I really love it. I'm originally from New Jersey, and I spent a lot of time in New York. I went to Columbia University, and I studied film there. And yeah, and I'm excited to talk to you guys about animation writing and everything else. So the way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a little game called In Between. Yes. We're going to give you two similar choices, and you have to choose in between the two of them and let us know why. Okay, sounds good. I'm excited. Awesome, awesome. I'll start us off with the first question. Would you rather be staying with Grandma Chata in Monte Macabre from Victor and Valentino or <laughs> with the Casa Grandes and Great Lake Cities from Casa Grandes? Okay, I love both those shows. Um, I would choose Monte Macabre because it's such a, a fantastical world. I'm like so obsessed with... Mm-hmm the the place that they live it just feels so mythical and epic and anything could happen so mm-hmm. i really mm-hmm. i really love the like surreal aspects of that show and like the magical realism element whereas casa grandes yes. is more grounded it would look i think more like my actual experience even though it's a mexican american family like just growing up in a dominican american family you know a lot of similarities um, mm-hmm. So I feel like I've already had yeah. the Casa Grandes experience and Monte Macabre would be really so cool. Mm. Like a different home life. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair answer. I think like for me, I see it's kind of it's kind of hard. Like I think I'm leaning towards with the Casa Grandes, even oh, though it might okay. be a packed household. And like you said, it's more set of reality. Mm-hmm. I just like I'm just thinking about the heat and Monte Macabre and just like <laughs> and just like the. The the lack of like I know there is some vegetation there and stuff, but like basically at the town it's all like, you know, kinda concrete or like dirt. Oh man. I just like very much like a desert town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I like idea of being able to walk to a park or like having some more <laughs> stuff near me, even though the magic mm-hmm. would be cool. Being able to walk to a park. Yeah. <laughs> Plus like grandma's cooking would be fire in the in the Casa Grande's where she had to like I forgot what episode, but 
she had to be her own competitor just to get like an honest reaction from her family to prove that she makes the best tamales like in town. I remember that one. Yeah, <laughs> that was really funny. And they were all like sneaking the other tamales and it ended up being her recipe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like, dude, if grandma is able to trick you to like sneak in somebody else's tamales because you think they're better, but they're hers, the food must be top notch. So <laughs> I mean, my cholesterol levels might be going up higher living with the Casa Grandes, but I'll, I'll make that sacrifice. <laughs> I think I'd also go with Monte Macabre uh, for a similar reason of like the the fantasy the sort of like urban fantasy I guess like the world building is just really incredible and even though I I mean the question is uh, living with like Chanta but like I mean I won't be home all the time right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think it would just be fun to like be be out on an adventure, maybe with Victor and Valentino. I guess I don't know if they are existing in this. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you can buck with them or have your own room. Yeah, yeah. they okay. can be there. Do you guys identify more as a Victor or a Valentino? <laughs> uh, probably a Valentino. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I I feel like my personality on this podcast. I'm probably more like a Victor. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say Valentino for sure. I'm more oh, yeah. hesitant and afraid of things. <laughs> yeah, I think I like to. I, it it kind of depends too, because like if I if I'm with somebody who is like really like afraid of stuff, then I'm like, okay, well now you're being a baby, about <laughs> and then you'll I'll step, like you'll fill, step up into the Victor the, role, the opposite role. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I tend I tend to be more Victor until somebody else is even more than me and then i'll i'll step back into the valentino role <laughs> all right good good answer next question <laughs> okay <laughs> which spy team would you rather go on a mission with kim ron and rufus from kim possible or the agents of q force oh man that's really hard i love both those shows i was a big fan of q force <laughs> which is um which is a newer show but growing up <laughs> kim possible mm-hmm. was like so everything to me um i don't know how to choose can you guys answer first i don't know <laughs> i have to think about it <laughs> uh i think for me i i for sure would have to go with kim possible just because i feel like if kim is able to pull ron's weight i feel like she wouldn't mind pulling mine either <laughs> So you're planning on being useless. I'm not planning on being useless, but if I just happen to be useless, I know Kim gots it. Yeah. If anything, like maybe while Kim is like doing her thing, Ron, I'll bring my switch. Ron and I can maybe play some Smash while we're waiting for Kim to do her thing. So you're actively gonna be useless. <laughs> Kim's like, why'd you bring that? You're know, like, I don't know, I get boring. <laughs> I think it might depend on who the villain is because if it's Draken, mm, you know, I'm not as worried. But if she goes there, you know, it's a different story. It's a little bit more dangerous, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I like your answer a lot. I definitely feel <laughs> like comfortable with Kim leading the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, if, I don't know. what about you, Yuki? I mean, you I don't guess like. My like... <laughs> No, I love that answer. It's so funny. It's so you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I mean, I guess like to the same point, like I kind of like how Q Force is sort of like bumbling about like as a group, mm-hmm. <laughs> straining together. 
<laughs> um, I don't know. Like that is hard too. I do love a good cargo pant though. <laughs> Maybe I would go for it for just for just a style reason. <laughs> Yes, and then we can go to what was it called? Was it Bueno Nacho? There, um, yeah, Bueno Nacho. (laughs) Yes, afterwards, I think good celebratory meal. Exactly. I feel like that's. I'm gonna choose Kim because I feel like also Q Force being an adult show, their uh, adventures were a little bit more dangerous. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, and the Kim ones were a little bit more fun, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna ultimately go with Kim Possible. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like the safety of Disney will protect me from actually getting <laughs> injured or dying. Thank you so much uh, for playing with us, Michael. Great questions. I love this. This is so fun. Yeah. No, of yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed them. Yeah. yeah. It was a lot of fun going through these with you. And to our audience, if you have any suggestions for future in between questions, send us a message either on Twitter or Instagram at straightaheadap or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. Michael, again, thanks thanks so much for being on. Could you tell us how you got your start working in the animation industry as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was really little, like probably around eight years old. And I was watching a lot of animated stuff like Kim Possible, the original Teen Titans, which was mm-hmm. more dramatic, I think, than the one they have now. And mm-hmm. whatever else, they probably like Dave the Barbarian, stuff like that. I really loved um, comedy and I really liked adventure. So I knew that I wanted to be a writer since then. And I would like write my own episodes of Kim Possible in like my notebook, like longhand. Oh, that's so <laughs> yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, really, really precious. But I didn't really know what a writer was. So I told everyone I wanted to be a director because usually like mm. when you see a movie, you see the director's name. And I just thought they came up with the whole story and they wrote the whole mm-hmm. things. And that was like back when I was watching like Spy Kids, the Robert Rodriguez and like Star Wars and stuff like that. So I was just like, I want to be a director and I would just go and like write my own like stories. I wrote a lot of like comic books when I was in school, like just like doodling and stuff like that. So I feel like from a young age, like animation was always there because I was watching a lot of animation and reading a lot of comics and stuff like that, but it never was something that I knew that I could do. I just like didn't think anything of it. And I think also mm-hmm. when I eventually went to college for um, film, we didn't really watch any animation, you know, in class and stuff like that. So it was just not something that was presented as an option to me. Mm-hmm. But I always was gravitated towards big characters I love like satire and stuff. So even as as I grew up, I was really into 30 Rock was a really big influence Mm, on me. And then Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because those Mm -hmm. were two. Those were two, even though they're live action, I feel like they could have been animated because the characters were so (laughs) big and campy and exaggerated. Mm -hmm. Um, And then both of them had a lot to say about the world. I think like Buffy to me is a show about growing up. Oh, totally. You know? Of course, it's this cheerleader, cheerleader who's battling demons, but like the demons are a metaphor for certain obstacles that she's going through in her real life. Um, And I was just really interested in how powerful it was to see. I related a lot to Buffy because, you know, I was I was, you know, in New Jersey as this Dominican 
gay kid who didn't fit in anywhere and didn't see anyone like him. You know, it's not like I grew up in Washington Heights where my parents first moved where there are a lot of Dominican people. So I was like one of the only mm-hmm. like Latino kids in my school, um, in high school. So I just really related to the character of Buffy, who was kind of this kind of outcast of her own and had these kind of personal battles that she had to fight and hide from the people around her. Mm. And then 30 Rock to me was one that just had so much to say about the world and like current events in a funny way. Mm. So it was those two shows that really shaped my point of view, along with like all the animation that I grew up with, like Kim Possible. And a lot of, honestly, like the Disney shows, I really liked like Hercules and stuff like that. That kind of translated into me writing a lot of sketch comedy and musical theater. So that's what I was pursuing in college. And that kind of point of view of like those big exaggerated characters works really well in animation. And that's just something I kind of fell into because after college, I did two writing fellowships. One was with the Writers Guild America East, and the other one was Sesame Street, the Sesame Street Writers Room. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was after I did those two fellowships that I started freelancing in animation. And I just started meeting people via the Sesame Street Writers Room. They're really good at connecting um, young writers to people who are hiring for shows and people who are looking for script coordinators or freelance writers or, you know, writers' assistants, anything that's like entry level. And it was a friend of mine who did the program with me that recommended me to freelance for an animated show. And that was my first kind of freelance. And then from there, once you start working, like your name gets passed around and people get familiar with you and the work just kind of comes in. It's like, I heard of you from this. I heard of you from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone recommended you from the Sesame Street uh, Fellowship and we're looking for writers and stuff like that. So I really fell into animation, but like Mm -hmm. looking back, it was a really clear path and it made a lot of sense. And I think it still does because I love writing goofy comedies with a social point of view, deep emotional themes and heart. And I think that's like what animation does a lot of the time. So that's kind of my path. It was like kind of unexpected and I fell into it, but it was good that I did. Uh, That's awesome. That's really great. And I I think I had like somewhat of a similar experience to you growing up where I knew I wanted to go on animation, but I just didn't know what the roles were. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't yeah. even know, like, because I'm on the art, on the art side as a storyboard artist, but do you even know, like, you were supposed to call, like, we were considered artists. Like, I thought, like, artists were more, like, fine arts people, people like Picasso and, like, yeah. you know, um, Rembrandt and stuff. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm a drawer, I guess. I draw. <laughs> I'm a drawer. Like, I want to grow up to be a professional drawer. Like, I don't, I didn't know. Yeah. But, like, it wasn't until, like, going through college or high school where I learned more about, like, oh, these are the roles that actually goes into a pipeline. But because I wasn't really introduced to any of that growing up, like how how am I supposed to know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And on the writing side of things, when when you're young, like when I was in high school, I just checked out all the like screenwriting books from the library. And a lot of them are like from the 80s, too. Mm. So they'll say things like write a spec script and mail it to the showrunner. And like, that's what you have to do, um, which is not really a thing that works and is not really (laughs) how it works today. I think today there are probably a lot more resources such as podcasts and interviews because TV has grown so much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it is a little hard when you're just starting out and when you're young and you're looking for, well, how do I actually do this? And what is actually the path? 
it's it's not mm-hmm. always clear. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah, and nowadays you can like Google scripts from like shows or movies or whatever, but you don't yeah. really know what you're looking for <laughs> in the first place. So that's that's the hardest one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and animation scripts are still really hard to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you are currently working on a variety of different projects, uh, one of them being a story consultant for an upcoming Broadway video audible comedy series. Could you talk to us a little bit more about the role of a story consultant for a project like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of the projects that I'm working on right now are on a freelance basis. And mm-hmm. when you're hired as a story consultant, it's exactly kind of what it sounds like. You're being brought into the writer's room to consult on the story. So in a lot of ways, it's very similar to any of the work that I do, because most of what I do is going into a room, whether it's freelance or staff, and pitching ideas and collaborating with the other writers in a room and like giving story ideas, bouncing off each other, anything like that. And also just like talking a lot about your own personal experiences, I think is such a big thing when you're a writer, because On top of just the skill that you've learned, like story structure and whatever craft that you're bringing to the room, you're also bringing your personal experiences and your personal stories, because that's where a lot of ideas come from for these episodes, whether it's animation, live action or um, podcast or anything, really, it comes from, you know, you talking about like, oh, this thing that happened to me when I was in college or, you know, Mm -hmm. this thing that happened Mm -hmm. to me. Um, and this feeling that I felt. So when you're a story consultant for that particular job, it's, it's just coming into the room and bringing those ideas and bringing yourself in service of the story. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on, and we do this a lot of in, in animation too, we call them writer summits Mm -hmm. where, um, you'll be asked to come in for a short period of time to give ideas to a project that, some showrunner or head writer is working on Mm. and those writer summits can be a day long they could be a couple days long they could be a week long um but what you're doing you're essentially being hired as a story consultant for that and you're just there to give your ideas and Mm. um help them break the story too Mm. so that's a lot of what i did in that role for broadway video and i'm really excited for that show to come out because there's a lot of personal stuff in it too so that was one room where we were all talking about personal events that happened to us and and all the writers kind of brought those stories to help shape this you know fictional story that has so much of each of us in it and is going to be really powerful i think so broadway Mm. video and audible is doing a lot of scripted podcasts um recently and um podcasts are becoming a really big way to tell stories nowadays yeah Mm -hmm. audio dramas are kind of like coming back yeah yeah and it's great it's really it's awesome to explore that i mean i love listening to podcasts it's just like another way to get your stories and it's a way to to get different kinds of stories because as much as there are so many shows now it can be still hard to find your niche and you know what exactly you're looking for so it's just another avenue to explore content Mm -hmm. but yeah that's a little bit about the story consultant role that was the first time i had ever heard the word story consultant but (laughs) looking back they just it's all the same thing it's like you're being (laughs) hired as a writer you know to bring what you bring to any room which is your personal experience and your storytelling capabilities 
Mm-hmm. So something I'm actually kind of curious about, uh, you mentioned this term, breaking the story. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that means uh, for those that might not be too aware, especially like, I feel like that's more like a writer's term. Yeah, absolutely. So there's uh, a difference between, I guess, pitching a story and then breaking the story. So when you're pitching a story, it's just like, well, what if, you know, uh, the character does this and then this happens and you can even pitch it based on an experience you had. Breaking the story is a little bit more when you guys have decided what the story is going to be or what the log line or what the, you know, general direction is and you start laying out the beats. Mm. So for this story where this character, you know, does this thing, where what happens first? First, they go talk to their mom and they get this, you know, question from their mom and then they have to go to the bank is the next scene. You know, now we're breaking the story. And that's just really laying out the beats from beginning to end about what that episode's going to look like. And by the end of breaking the story, a writer goes off to write the outline for that story. But they should already have the general beats, beginning, middle, end of that story and what it's going to look like. And ideally, they also have some joke pitches from the room because as you're breaking the story, people chime in and pitch a joke and you know, pitch a personal thing that happened to them. And then suddenly you have all this like color to add to this story that you're breaking. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's also what we do when you're staffed in a room and when you're writing a freelance episode, that is essentially a lot of what the writer's room looks like. Mm. First, you'd start with that pitching brainstorm phase. And then once you've decided, okay, this is the episode where, just to use an example, like, Alice, I wrote for Alice's Wonderland Bakery and Disney. This is the episode where Alice goes to the trial, goes to the courtroom, you know, and we're putting um, Alice and her bakery on trial with the Queen of Hearts. (laughs) So what does that episode look like? Well, first, Alice has to, you know, say something to the queen that gets the queen to be like, I'm putting everyone on trial or something like that, you know. So that that's when it transitions (laughs) to breaking the story. Mm. And then once you're done breaking the story, depending on if it's an 11 minute, if it's a half hour, it could vary how long it takes to break a story. But once you're done with that, the writer goes off and writes the outline. Okay. Awesome. awesome. Thank you for uh, breaking that down for me. Yeah, it's a term that I've heard a couple of times of like being able to kind of understand it more. That's really cool to understand the different processes that can happen in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the other things that Kyle also wanted to add is like, so you went to Columbia University, which is a prestigious school. Like that is crazy. Like going to a school like Columbia. How do you feel like your education attending Columbia University as a film major prepared you for your career now? It's a tough question because it was a really good school, um, obviously. And I think what Columbia does really well is giving people a a well-rounded education because we have to do this core curriculum, Mm. whether you like it or not. You have to take (laughs) these like certain pillar classes that you uh, learn a little bit of everything. So I had to take like science, intro to science and stuff like that, which a lot of colleges do. But I specifically went in wanting to be a film major. Mm -hmm. To be honest, the Columbia undergrad film program is a little bit more theory based. It's a little more theoretical. So it's a little bit more a track to become a film critic than anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of my education with the school was like watching a lot of old movies and French film movies and Citizen Kane. I watched in three different classes and wrote three different essays about it. 
but it's a lot of like essay writing and critiquing the story and talking about director's choices and stuff like that, which is good to know. I think, you know, when you're making your own stuff, I'm sure it plays a part. But yeah, for example, I, I think I mentioned already on the podcast, we never watched an animated movie in my classes. You know, I did four years there. We never watched an animated movie in school. So and now I work in animation. So I don't really feel like <laughs> I don't really feel like it prepared me very much. And I think what did prepare me is extracurriculars outside of school. So I and a lot of the people that do the film major there mm. really want to make films and they really want to write and, you know, learn that kind of more creative work. And it's just the type of school where if you want to do those things, you kind of have to do it on your own. So I did that and I did a lot of like playwriting. I did a lot of sketch comedy. I started my own sketch comedy group and we would make a digital sketch every mm -hmm. week and like edit it, film it, write it, you know, and turn it out. And that was a little bit more my education on the writing side of like learning how to just throw things against the wall and try things because you really have to like defy perfectionism as a writer and just make things and learn from your mistakes, you know? Mm -hmm. So just like being able to churn out a different sketch every week, like not all of them were winners, but that was really my education. What I learned from that was really like, oh, I'm really good at writing these like really ridiculous characters. I really like larger than life, elevated characters. You know, <laughs> I'm less like slice of life, mm -hmm. grounded realism mm -hmm. which is a lot of could be a lot of what we studied in my classes i really like these cartoonish you know characters <laughs> so even though that's really simple and sounds really like obvious maybe from looking in but that's a really important thing to learn about yourself as a writer right. you know your strengths and what you gravitate towards mm -hmm. um so that's i think how in school that was really more my education. And then I did a lot of musical theater. And a big reason I wanted to go to Columbia University was because not only my my family lives in the Bronx and in New Jersey, about like 20 minutes away. So it's like a really convenient school for being close to family and being able to have like my dad drive me over things that I needed in between, you know, classes and stuff. But also mm. they have this show called The Varsity Show, which is like a big thing that pulls in people interested in the arts and it's like their mm. big tradition and like Rogers and Hammerstein were part of it like way back in the day. And more recently, like Kate McKinnon and mm. uh, Jenny Slate. And it's a big satire thing. So they give you a really big budget to put on a musical spoofing the school. <laughs> and that I was really attracted to that because, you know, it, you, like you said, it's a very prestigious school. I think that to me was mostly very intimidating, especially as a person of color. Mm. my parents like dragged me to that tour i didn't want to go to the tour <laughs> but they oh. <laughs> but they oh. were like you know it's and they they dragged me to a lot of these really prestigious schools that i just felt mostly like i don't belong here you know i had that like imposter syndrome mm. like this mm. is a really good school like i'm not good enough to go here so that was my experience for a lot of Columbia. And then the fact that they had this show, though, that made fun of themselves made it a little bit more easy to be there for me mm. because, OK, so here's this school that's really elite and prestigious and intimidating. 
but they have this like sense of humor about themselves and they're critical of themselves. So that to me made it a little bit more like, okay, I can, I can do this because <laughs> at least they, they call themselves out on their elitism and stuff like that. And when I ended up writing for that show, I wrote this show about feeling like a imposter at that school and being a first generation Dominican student and being around all these like statues of dead white men I just wrote something funny about that feeling, you know, and, and pointed out to people, you know, I wasn't the only one that felt a little intimidated Mm -hmm. by the prestigiousness of that school. Mm. And yeah. And I think that became also part of my writing education because that was one of the first times I wrote something personal. Mm. I think before that I was just like trying to like write French new wave films in college because that's what we were watching in class (laughs) And then, you know, I didn't watch a lot of like Latino filmmakers in class, which is really disappointing. And, and, you know, I hope that they amend the curriculum a little bit. And um, but it was really that musical that I wrote that was the first time I was like, oh, well, this is my experience, you know, and it was really Mm -hmm. cathartic to write that because then people would talk to me and be like, oh, that was my experience, too. You know, and for a lot of my time at um, school, I felt really alone. Um, in feeling like out of place and the truth is like a lot of people feel out of place and stuff so to answer the question (laughs) um, a lot of my education was just by writing and making things on on my own um, and learning about myself as a writer so you don't necessarily need to go to school for animation or go to school for writing Mm -hmm. as long as you are making your own things and getting that education somewhere it could even be like classes you know after college, I did all the UCB classes and stuff like that. That's a way to get an education in comedy and writing as well. Yeah. One of the things I also want to get into as well is that we've talked about the Animation Girl subcommittees in previous episodes. One example, Marie Lum and Brian Bay talked about the DDNV group within TAG. And the DDNV is a desk disabled and neurodiverse. Could you tell us a bit more about the POC writer subcommittee? Yeah, absolutely. I've become really involved with them this year. It's a fairly new group. I think it started last year. And it's just a subcommittee within the Animation Guild that is focused on Black, Indigenous, POC, people of color, writers in animation. So it's really, I think the main goal of it is to create a space for us Mm -hmm. just where we can talk and meet each other and, you know, build community. But also we're focused on this year of starting some events. So the first one that we're going to do is POC and animation mixer for people who are in the animation guild or Mm. on an animated show, perhaps in like a support staff role. And it's just going to be a mixer where Mm -hmm. we do on Zoom and breakout rooms. And it's just like get to know each other because a big thing about working in animation or, or in writing in general is that uh, you tend to get a lot of your work through your friends. You know, people recommend you for things Yeah, when you're looking for work. Like that's mm-hmm. how I got my first freelance script was actually a friend of mine that, you know, said, Hey, are you available? And I said, yeah. And they passed my name on samples over to the hiring person. So what we want to do is basically make introductions for POC writers in animation who are already, you know, writing or are already on a show and just kind of build communities so that we all get to know each other and we can all kind of help each other out. So then, you know, if I meet someone who's looking for like, hey, we're looking for writers that can really do action comedy, you know, and I just met this person that was like, 
I do action comedy. That's my thing. That's what I like to do. That's what I like to write. Then I could be like, oh, well, have you met this person that I just met who seems great and lovely and can recommend them to those things? Mm -hmm. So that's like one goal that we have with events like that. We're also planning to do some like panels and and see if we can get some execs to come and talk to people. Mm -hmm. But essentially, this group is just like a resource and it's a safe space for POC writers and animation to come and talk about what frustrations we're having in the industry, what, you know, questions we have, because like I said earlier, like a lot of times you can feel very alone in your journey. Yeah. And oftentimes you're not alone. And a lot of people are having very similar experiences. And Mm. when you're just starting out too, it can be a little confusing about contracts and stuff like that. Like, is this normal? Is this right? Like, what's the guild minimum? All these questions that's kind of why the guild exists. To, and you can also go to the Writers' Craft Committee, which is for all writers, mm, right. and ask those questions. But the Animation Guild is really a place about fostering community with other animation professionals. And our group is specifically for the writers, the POC writers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and we're, we're growing little by little. And I think we just, oh, we just launched on Twitter. So please give us a follow. The at is at. T-A-G tag underscore POC writers. And we're going to be posting on there whenever we have our monthly meetings, which we meet once a week. And then whenever we have events like our mixer, which I'm sure we'll try to do again and any kind of events and panels that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really about building community. So definitely follow us on Twitter. Keep in touch. Even if you're not in the Animation Guild yet, we definitely want to do some events for uh, pre-guild, pre-WGA writers too, because it's really about building community and fostering a place for us to all get to know each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then just something I also want to mention is that, correct us for one, but you're also the one currently running the Twitter account for the POC Writer Subcommittee, correct? Yes, I am running it right now. <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, it's, I know, and I'm new to Twitter too, so... How, how is that? How is it running, running a Twitter <laughs> I try my best. I don't know. You'll have to let me know. I hope I'm not doing it wrong, but I try to hashtag and stuff. And <laughs> I, do, I, yeah, I don't know. I try to, what I try to do in, in the Twitter stuff is I try to retweet other groups that are doing things that are relevant to POC writers and animation. So like whenever I see fellowship opportunities, I'll retweet mm-hmm. that. And just so, cause I know like people who are following us are, you know, animation writers, POC animation writers, like Anything that's relevant and other groups like, you know, Black and Animated, Women in in Animation, like those groups, I try to retweet so that people have these resources. So because that's what we want to be, I think, ultimately is is a resource for POC animation writers. Mm -hmm. So that's been my strategy with Twitter, but it's good. I really have not used Twitter. I do have my own Twitter, but I only started using it this year, <laughs> but I noticed, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of community building on Twitter. I think it's really good. And and mm. we had like an animation rally for the guild just a couple months ago that I think was heavily organized on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So it can be ver- a very powerful tool of letting people know about events and what's going on and voicing concerns and the negotiations that are ongoing, New Deal for Animation, that's a lot of that work is happening on Twitter. And I think it's it's great. So that's why, you know, we really wanted to get on Twitter and, you know, echo those voices that are already talking about those things and also just create a new space for POC animation writers. I think that was the first group 
in the animation guild that I joined because it was specifically for me. Mm-hmm. And it's it, there's a big difference between, you know, come to any regular meeting and like come to this meeting that's specifically for you. Like that's very inviting. Mm-hmm. So when a friend of mine was like, hey, there's this POC animation group, like you should come to the meetings. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, sounds good. And I went um, and it was just a really welcoming environment. And, you know, we had a lot in common with the other people. So from that, I started going to the other animation guild meetings. So it's it's really powerful to just see what you can do when you create this space that a lot of people need and want. Mm. And then suddenly you have all these people involved with the guild. So it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point too of like, this is almost a doorway into the guild as a whole, because I think some people, sometimes they get concerned that we're like, oh, you know, why are you obviously like sort of in a confused way? Why are you sectioning out people? Like, shouldn't you just be working as a whole, you know, yeah. like making when we have groups that are like uh, sectioned for just POC, you know, that sort of thing or like queer folk or something like that. It's like, well, that helps you get into that safe space. and then you know, like you're saying, move into maybe the organization as a whole uh, Mm. that way, you know, integrate. Absolutely, because it can be hard and a little intimidating to just like go to a meeting that you've never been to and you don't know any of the people there. You know what I mean? So that can be a lot, especially for us animation people who are, a lot of us are introverts, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can be a little scary. It's like, who's going to be there? Do I have to say something? Like, what is this, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's nice to get those personal invitations, even if it's just other people yeah, that you exactly. may know being like, hey, do you know about the writer's craft committee? Like, you should come. You should ask this question. You know, you should uh, voice your concerns because the guild is really made up of us, all of us. So mm-hmm. it's only most powerful when we're we're engaged. Yeah. So something else I kind of want to ask is that you are currently in development with Disney for an original animated series. First of all, that is freaking crazy. And that's so awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no, dude, that's that's I'm so happy for you. Like, I'm. it's really, really cool. And then second, could you tell us a little bit more about that process for those that might not be familiar with having a show be in that development stage? So basically, the way this came about was through a general meeting with Disney. It was my first general meeting with anyone at Disney. Mm -hmm. um, And it was with two of the execs. And it was when you go on a general meeting, they're going to say, tell me about yourself. And you're going to give a little spiel about like, well, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I lived in New York. Like I started writing when I was young. Like all these things that I've probably already mentioned while we were talking. Mm -hmm. And it's just a chance for you to tell your story and tell them what you're passionate about. So (laughs) through that, actually one of the execs called me and was like, we really liked your story. We want to do something in the vein of, you know, your personal experience that you grew up with your family and stuff like that. Because I often talk a lot about my Dominican family Mm -hmm. and I lived in East Harlem above my uncle's pharmacy. He runs a a pharmacy, which is very, very similar to like the Casa Grandes, right? That they live above their uh, family store um, in the show. So just like I was just talking about that and growing up, Mm -hmm. you know, in my family and one of the execs thought that resonated. So she was like, we would love for you to pitch a show 
kind of based on what you told me, like we really like your point of view. Mm -hmm. So that was really easy for me as like a young creator to get that personal invitation. It really made a difference because I don't know if I would have pitched on my own. I was very young, you know, I was like 24, like, you know, I, I was just starting out. I didn't have any pitching experience. I had just finished the Sesame Street Fellowship and I had done a couple freelance things here and there. I hadn't gotten staffed yet at that point. But having that like personal invitation made me feel comfortable and made me feel welcome and made me feel like they're inviting me to the table, you know? Mm. So I was very lucky to have that. But I think too, when Mm -hmm. these companies are looking for you know, diverse writers, and they're looking to tell different stories and, you know, branch out from what's been done before. That's something that could go a really long way, whether whether they're engaging, you know, on a personal level with writers and inviting them to, to pitch and stuff that makes a really big difference. So that's what happened. And then I pitched a couple ideas to that exec at Disney, and she gave me some feedback and Eventually, from that, we picked one idea to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, And that's the project that I've been developing for the past year-ish. And the way that process goes after the pitch is you'll... It's almost very similar to writing a freelance episode, at least in my experience, where you'll send in like a premise or a story area of like, this is what the episode could look like. This is going to happen. And this is the conflict. And this is the lesson. This Mm. is the emotional part all those things. And you write it up in like the way that you're telling a story about a page, then you get that premise approved by the exec and probably you get a couple notes too. And then you take those notes and you go to outline. um, And then you start fleshing out the story. um, Oh, I'm sorry, I I did skip ahead a little bit before you start (laughs) um, the premise for the episode, you're going to flesh out the series. So you're going to do like a series take and kind of write like a mini Bible um, mm-hmm. that says like, this is what the show is. These are the main characters. Mm-hmm. This is the theme, which I think is, is to me, that's a really important part about mm-hmm. creating a show is to have a really strong theme and what you're trying to say, because that's where all of the episodes come out of is that theme. It's, it's a bit of a story engine. So usually your theme and your character kind of go hand in hand. And that's what's going to create all these episodes that'll last for a hundred seasons and, you know, go on forever and ever and ever and Mm -hmm. endless stories and fun and stuff. So throughout that process, you're getting notes from the exec and amending things and editing things. And, you know, can we change this character? Can we, can we include a character that's like this, you know, can we add blah, blah, blah. And then you end up with your show. Like by the end of that process of getting notes on this like story Bible kind of document that is going to guide the show and have all the characters and the theme and like sample episodes and what to expect. It's a collaboration. By the end of that, you and your exec have created some kind of show and then they'll launch you on the outline for the episode. So you'll start with like, this is the first episode, which I already said the story area. This is what we want to cover. Then you'd go to the outline and it's similar to writing an episode of TV, only you're kind of breaking the story by yourself. Mm-hmm. So you have to come up with, you are your own writer's room when you're in development. And, you know, some people have like a collaborator, like a writing partner that they're developing with so they can bounce ideas with. Otherwise, you're you're kind of on your own and you just have like the exec to guide you. 
So that can be a little challenging because one of the best things about a writer's room, and when you get the green light, you can have a writer's room potentially, is you get to bounce things off each other and collaborate and all come up with the stories together. And everyone has their superpower that they add to the room. So you have the person that's like pitching the jokes. You have the person that's adding, you know, the emotional stakes and all these things. But when you're developing, you have to do that all yourself. So um, you do that. And then you write an outline, you hand it in, you get those notes. And depending on, you know, how many fixes you have to make, then they launch you on a script, you write the script. And then from there, you know, you get notes on the script, you either decide whether you're going to go into visual development, or write another script, or, you know, start over, go back and do you know, whatever it could be there. It's honestly, every development process probably looks a little bit different, Mm -hmm. but that's the gist. You're just creating this story. You have the exact kind of guiding you, giving you notes from the the network, the studio, and you're just creating from there. That's insane, but that's really cool. Thank you for like diving really deep into that. Like I'm, I've learned so much just by being able to kind of hear like, yeah, the step-by-step of like how it goes on. So that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Nice. One of the other things I want to ask is that you've mentioned a briefly kind of throughout like your experiences and like, you know, being Dominican. One of the things I also really just want to dive a little bit more into is that like, how do you feel your cultural background has influenced your voice as a writer? Yeah, hugely. I think that, you know, a lot of the things that I write on my own include Latino characters. A lot of the things that I write include Mm. LGBTQ characters, Mm -hmm. you know, these are just ways that your experience shapes who you are as a writer. And when you're a writer, I said this earlier, but part of what you're communicating and what you're selling to people is your command of the craft, but also your personal experiences, because that's where stories come from. So who you are and how you grow up and where you grow up and, you know, the experience you have when you're young and formative and all these things, they shape your point of view. And that shapes the kind of writer that you are. So I think Mm -hmm. cultural background, personal experiences, all those things add up to what makes you unique and what gives you your specific point of view of the world. And whether you know it or not, that is shaping your work that you put out there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Sometimes it can be really subconscious too. Like, yeah. You know, when I like like I told you in college, like doing, you know, sketch comedy and stuff and realizing like, oh, I have this thing for like big characters, elevated worlds and stuff like mm-hmm. that. That's a subconscious thing that I think comes from my identity and my point of view and kind of the experiences that I've had. It's like this is how I've experienced the world. Sometimes it's felt really elevated to me mm-hmm. and just like blowing up those real emotions that you have into something bigger. So sometimes it can be subconscious and sometimes it can be really intentional. And sometimes you set out to write something that's like based on this really intentional personal experience you had based on, you know, growing up a Dominican family and stuff like that. And you can be really intentional about it, too. Mm -hmm. That's really wonderfully put. Do you feel like your um, backgrounds and identities influence the work that you guys do on the production animation side and the character design and animating? Well. For for me, at least as an animator, by then you kind of receive the characters. It's already gone through the d- design and all of that. Uh, all I can insert is like acting choices. Not mm. a whole lot of Asians <laughs> <laughs> in some of the content that I've uh, animated. But yeah. uh, 
that's sort of how I could influence is like my decisions for acting choices, what I think somebody would look like, you know, when they're emoting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's like a, you know, wrong answer or not quite what they're going for. But I do think that's definitely influenced by like the people I grew up around and how I perceive like certain acting or certain, you know, ways to express yourself as sort of like a a literal sense in in cultural background. We had some guests from Asians in Animation on the other week, and they sort of took it as more of like a cultural work ethic standpoint. And I was like, that's interesting. I didn't really think of it uh, in that way of like, because of my cultural background, my work ethic is uh, has been influenced in a way where I'm like, oh, yeah, very community oriented in my mind, at least from my experience. I was like, oh, yeah, if like I can't finish this thing, I'll just tell somebody and like hopefully somebody else will be able to pick it up. That was my experience growing up like in community oriented churches and uh, stuff like that. So in that way, mm-hmm. I do think like culture has influenced, I guess, my my work mm-hmm. as an animator. I think same cultural work ethic. I think mm-hmm. that's why I work really hard and why I put so much of myself in what I do. I think mm. as far as like my cultural influences, definitely my personal work. It's like my upbringing, my interests, my background. Uh, when it comes yeah. to my industry work, it honestly does depend. If there's a moment where a character isn't quite defined, I'll try to see like, oh, what something from my own background, my personal career can I infuse into this character or just see what I can kind of bring in. But like like you said, sometimes it's the right answer. Sometimes it's the wrong answer. It just depends who my higher up is and what their vision for what I'm doing uh, at that moment is. But I've also got a chance to freelance for this wonderful show called uh, Rey Mysterio versus La Oscuridad, which is like, it's a wrestling show based on the freaking wrestler Rey Mysterio. And it's being produced for Latin America Cartoon Network. And there I got to put a lot of my own influence, a lot of my own interests. And I felt like almost like a pretty big say in some of like the action that I got to portray or like certain character moments with some of the characters. And that one, because it is like a very culture based show, I was able to infuse my cultural upbringing more and it fit more into that setting. So it depends, but personal work for sure. Yeah. I feel like it does stem from my background. Mm-hmm. Both of you brought up something really interesting, which is the difference between personal work and, and also the work that you're hired to do. Because a lot of the times when you're hired mm-hmm. to do something, you can't necessarily yeah. control how many of the characters are of diverse backgrounds or of your cultural background. And you do have to kind of do what the show is asking for you and what the showrunner is looking for. Mm-hmm. So occasionally you get to weave in you know, things from your, your personal life and your cultural background, but it is a balancing act of like, this isn't completely your show. So you have to, you know, deliver your job as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think kind of to bring it back around to like your development with Disney, for example, in the general meeting, they thought just that your life story was so interesting. And I mean, to you, it, it was probably mundane, right? Like, oh, this is just how I lived. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I think companies are looking for like diversity or like, ooh, a quirky new story. But like, yeah, there's like hundreds of thousands of people living these lives every day. And it's like, well, I guess this is like novel for you, <laughs> but we can use, regardless of where it's coming from, we can use that platform to then like, you know, create these more diverse stories and create opportunities where like you in the writer's room 
will be incorporating more like Dominican characters, more queer characters that will like trickle down to us doing storyboarding, design, animation. Yeah, ideally, absolutely. So before we get into our final question, thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Where can our audience find you? And is there anything else you want to promote? Um, you can find me on Twitter, even though I don't use it very much, <laughs> but uh, it's at M-R-O-D-R-I-G-94. Um, and then otherwise, you can also find me running the tag POC Writers Committee. And right now, I think that's that's really what I want to promote, which is um, our group. And I'd really like mm -hmm. to get more people following us on Twitter and engaging with us and coming to the meetings and making sure that we're spreading the word and we've had in this past few months like more and more new people coming to our meetings which is really exciting because then we all get to meet other poc writers in animation and we can kind of build you know a space where we can all connect and talk and chat and air our grievances and all of that so yeah give us a follow and hopefully see more people at the meetings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. And as we come to a close, what final advice would you want to bestow on those that want to pursue a career in the animation industry? My advice would be to not strive for perfection and just to make things, mm -hmm. especially if you want to pursue writing and you want to do TV writing. A lot of what people are looking for is superpowers to add to the writer's room. So you don't necessarily have to be the full package. You know, you can be really good at character and have a way to go with plot, or you can be really good at theme and structure and just like make your own stuff, write your own samples, write your own animated episodes, whether it's spec scripts or original stuff. Originals always best because you can add so much of your personal story which is also what you bring to the writer's room. Mm -hmm. And things don't have to be perfect. I think a lot of POC writers and creatives have this imposter syndrome that I had when I was younger of like, am I good enough to do this? Can I do this? Like, And it comes from not seeing other people like you in the spaces that you want to be, mm -hmm. or not as much. Mm -hmm. And I think just letting go of that perfectionism and saying, you know, maybe I can do this, maybe I am good enough to do this. And I don't have to be perfect. That's going to let you write something on the page and then, you know, find work and find other people that other writers you can connect with, network with your other writers, because that's how a lot of us find work. And yeah, just keep keep making your stuff above all else. Well put. Yeah, 100% agree. Well, audience, if you enjoyed our interview with Michael today, please rate and follow us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at straightaheadap. Thank you to June Chung for suggesting Michael as a guest. Shout out to June. Yes. Woo! Yeah, June. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any suggestions for future guests, please contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. We love discovering new professionals and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. I just wanted to say, I didn't say earlier, but thank you so much for having me. It was so fun to talk to you guys and I'm looking forward to listening to this episode and all the, the future episodes that you guys do. This is great. Thank you. Oh, damn. Very much appreciated. And thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week, have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.